0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Thursday, February the 23rd, 2023. It is currently 1138 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. I hope you're having a wonderful day. How did your day begin? How did you how did you start your day today? Come on, what was the first thing you remember of your day today? How how did you wake up? What woke you up? Was it an alarm clock? What 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 woke you up? Did you wake up feeling energized or did you wake up feeling uh, like? How did your day begin? Well, for me, my day began with. Something sitting on my chest, looking right in my face, meowing, okay? My cat, Luna, was sitting on my chest, looking at me in the face, meowing at me, basically telling me, I would like you to wake up now and I would like for you to play with me because I am bored and I don't know what's going on. I want you to get out of bed. That was what Luna was telling me this morning. My cat was there telling me, you need to get out of this bed right now. I'm sick and tired of this. No, I'm waking you up. So I had to at least get up, make sure they had food, water, make sure that they were taken care of. Right. But then I was like, ah, no, 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 no. It's like six o'clock in the morning, six 30 in the morning. No, 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 no. I'm getting back in bed. So I got back in bed and I'm like, well now, because once I wake up, I really cannot go back to sleep. It's like first I hate sleep, but once I wake up, I feel like if I go back to sleep, I've committed some crime against the universe. Like I've, I don't know, I'm guilty of something. Like I feel like What are you doing? You're awake. Why would you go back to sleep? But I was still kind of like somewhat out of it. So I reached over, grabbed my iPad, and I opened up Pocket Cast, one of the podcast apps that I use. In fact, let me do that right now. I opened it up, and I found myself looking at the podcast Growing Through Grace. Growing Through Grace. That's the podcast that I ended up going to on the Pocket Cast podcasting app. Growing through grace, and I noticed that they had um, a two part two episodes entitled Taking the Land personally part one and part two Taking the land personally, part one and part two. I'm like, okay, that's an interesting phrase taking the land personally okay I I, I when it, well, as soon as I saw taking the land, I'm like, okay, so I'm assuming most likely it's Joshua. I'm assuming they're in Joshua taking the land personally, I thought, I thought that was kind of an interesting way to describe it, right? They're like, it was like, here, here's Joshua leading the people. They kind of have a captain, a conqueror helping take the land. But at some point that stops and now it's handed over to the people. Now you have to take it personally. All right. That's, that's kind of an interesting development. We could talk about that in its historical narrative. But I thought, okay, you know what? I'll at least listen to this and, and see what I can do with it. So I started listening and there was, obviously there was an immediate concern in my mind because I, because I was right, they were in Joshua. I was right that they took this idea of, of Joshua in a sense kind of being the conqueror. And then next thing you know, the land, to, to take the rest of the land was gonna be up to each individual personally. Okay, I, I, I kind of knew where they were going, but I think you can guess what happened. You probably can guess what happened because it, because pretty much 99% of all preachers on the face of the planet do this whenever you're looking at say the book of Joshua pastors love to turn it into an allegorical story of the Christian life right that that Joshua is the story of Christian victory of it can't be a story of heaven because they have to fight to get it they have to fight to maintain it so most will say so the the the, the promised land is not a picture of Heaven, it's a picture of the victorious Christian life, and how we have to fight to gain that ground. We have to take that territory. In one sense, God has already won the victory, but now we have to go get the victory. And so they turn it into really an allegory. And there's all kinds. And I mean, there's all kinds of books out there that will do this. There's devotional books about Joshua, about Israel going into the Promised Land, what that pictures, and Joshua pictures this, and this pictures this, and the, and then it goes it just allegory, allegory, illustrative, illustrative. And sometimes, at least for me, now I know many of you, you roll your eyes, but I'm very just. mm, How can we say this? Gun shy of that? Is that a good term? I'm, I'm, I'm so hesitant of it because to me, I'm like, well, first of all, is that what it was originally intended to do? To turn to be turned into some kind of allegory, or was it originally written to give us the historical account of God's people, God's nation, Israel? and what they encountered, and and what, and we may be able to learn some lessons from that, but can we just, in a sense, hijack the story and say, sorry, Joshua, you need to get out of the way. Sorry, Israel, you need to get out of the way. This has now become our story, and this now becomes about my life. Now, most preachers don't have a problem with it. Most Christians sitting in the pew, they don't have a problem with it. But I've always been like, who are we to just insert ourselves into the text? Now, I do believe all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. I do believe that, but I believe we just have to be careful how we just grab these historical narratives and just kind of push the original, the original people in the story out and in place us there, right? So I do have a little bit of concern with that. And but I, as I listened, I was like, okay, a kind of a subject came to the forefront. And that subject was spiritual complacency, spiritual complacency. And I thought, well, that's an interesting topic, right? Spiritual, spiritual, spiritual complacency or being spiritually complacent. Now, complacency is defined as this, according to Merriam-Webster. Here we go. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. So this would be, you become spiritually complacent because you become self-satisfied. You're like, hey, I'm doing pretty good. And you're not aware of the deficiencies in your own Christian life. And you're not aware of the dangers that you are facing. You just kind of become like, I'm doing pretty good spiritually. And you become self-satisfied. You become complacent. Another definition is, an instance of, uh, of usually unaware or uninformed self-satisfaction. So it's an instance of usually you're unaware and you're uninformed, but there's self-satisfaction. There, there's a lack of knowledge. There's a lack of understanding, but you have this satisfaction. Is spiritual complacency, does it occur when you get to a place in your Christian life that you're just kind of like, well, look at me. I've look at where I am. Look at how good I look at how far I've come. It's, I mean, do you ever struggle with spiritual complacency? Now we could ask, is Joshua a story of spiritual complacency, or at least when you get later into the book? Is the story of Israel as they come into the promised land that they reach a point that they become spiritually complacent because they become self-satisfied? Is that is that the problem? Is that the problem? Well, we're gonna listen to a little bit of this. And we'll just, we're will just we just going to have a little fun. I'm not reviewing the entire episode. I've already skipped ahead like six minutes. So I'm coming in a little late into it. We're not going to review the whole thing. I just thought we would just throw this topic out today and see what you have to think in regards to it. You may agree with this. You may disagree with this. You may like how they handle the text. Again, just full transparency. I get nervous when people just start allegorizing uh, the text. I just like, well, what like I don't really is that, is, that, <laughs> is that how this is So the boat represents my life, the storm represents trials and tribulations. yeah I, I just I can go on and on and on with biblical stories and it's just like I don't know how we always find ourselves in them but that's 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 uh, neither here nor there for now. Oh well it will will probably be here, but you'll see in a minute, All right So we're gonna be reviewing just for so that you can look this up for yourself. Growing through grace. Right? It's a daily radio broadcast. Obviously, it's a podcast now. Growing through grace. I listen to it on the Pocket Cast podcasting app. I think I also listen to it, I think, on the Edify Christian podcast app. I subscribe to it on pretty much a number of podcasting apps. And I haven't listened to it in a long time. And today, thanks to my cat, well, this is how my day started by listening to this. And so now here we are at fast approaching noon here in West Texas. I thought I would share it with you and you can tell me what you think. Are you ready? Here. We go.
1: The, the tragedy of, of this occupation was that God had given them and promised them so much and, and somehow after this seven-year period and for the next, you know, two decades, the people rather than pursuing with great excitement what
0: God had promised them pretty much just quit. Okay, so they come into the land, they've had these victories, and then they kind of reach a point where they're just kind of like, they just quit. In other words, God had kind of given them the victory, but they didn't pursue it. Now, th- this, can raise, this raises all kinds of philosophical and theological questions. Well, if God gave them the victory, then why didn't they just have the victory? It's like, God gave them the victory, but they have to go get the victory. Now, a lot of people describe the Christian life this way, right? Hey, in, because of Christ, you actually can basically stop sinning. You just have to go get it. All you have to do is do it. Well, that raises, again, a thousand problems and a thousand issues and, 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 and problems. But um, we, we again, we won't go back down that path. We've covered that path a lot in other podcast episodes. Maybe we'll have to talk about it here. But it's just from a historical perspective, in a sense, he's trying to figure it out. I mean, they made it this far and they just kind of like, eh, we'll quit. In other words, all the land hadn't been conquered. They hadn't taken all the land. They hadn't driven out the people. They hadn't, in a sense carried out God's judgment upon the heathen. They they had just become, well, spiritually complacent, self-satisfied. We're good enough. We've got enough of the land. We're good. We don't need the rest. We're good. We're good. That, that's what he's trying to process from the story. And I think he's in, uh, if I said Judges, Joshua chapter 13. I know I haven't given the chapter, but if I for some reason said Judges, I don't know why. I was looking at that earlier today. So, my mind is telling me, you said Judges when I know I actually said Joshua, but see, I'm doubting myself. All right, let's move on. All right, but that's what he's trying to figure out as a preacher. Okay, the people make it this far and they just kind of stop. Why did they stop? What led them to stop? What lessons can we learn from their stopping? All right, let's see what he's going to do with this.
1: They pretty much kind of put their lives on hold, they never possessed the land that God wanted for them. What they left around them became their downfall. You can ride over the children of Israel at this time. Low expectation, dwindling ambition. Not kind of the hunger that you see in Joshua's life who hung around Moses and wouldn't leave the, the place of worship. You know, no, no drive. God had wanted to bring judgment upon the heathen through this people that he had chosen. A lot of that stuff was left undone. And because it was left undone and it was left... You know, in their lives, God, who had wanted to protect his people by wiping out, if you will, the bad influence around them, they left that stay there. And and the influence took quite a toll
0: on the people as as a whole. Okay, there's some some major issues here. I, I don't know if you caught them, but there's two big issues I want us to deal with. Number one, he makes the claim they never got the land. Now, you may not think that's a significant thing. You may not even understand the significance of it, but it has Immense implications, profound implications on when you're dealing with maybe eschatology, right? Because here's how some people view it Israel never got the land God promised them the land they never got it they never got it now some will say well they never got it because to possess it they had they basically were under a covenant of works and they and so they could lose the land and the the land promises were not guaranteed uh it was only guaranteed if they obeyed if they didn't obey they would lose the land so so whether they, they lost it it doesn't matter anymore they were under basically a covenant of works they didn't get the land it's irrelevant we don't need to worry about that land promise ever again. Right, that's how some people view it. Look, like they didn't. They, they would say, "You're right. They didn't get the land, God, because the promise was conditional. The promise was based off basically works, and they didn't do the work. They didn't meet the condition. They lost the land. It's never going to be theirs again. It doesn't. We don't need to worry about Israel and land. It's over. It was a conditional promise." based off them obeying, and they failed, therefore they lost the land. That's how some people view it. Others were like, wait a minute, they got the land. They God c- fulfilled the promise. Israel got all the land. It was fulfilled, therefore there is no future land promise. They got it, but they lost it because they disobeyed. But God kept the promise. So In other words, we don't have to look for a future promise for land because God gave them the land. That's how other people. So some people will say they they never got it because it was conditional. They didn't meet the conditions. Others say they got it. So God fulfilled the promise, but they lost it, but it doesn't matter that they lost it because it was, well, fulfilled. And it's just, they're finished, they're done. And by the way, Israel's been replaced by the church. That's usually where that leads, but okay, you get the idea. So they never got it, but it's it's okay because they failed, so there's no future promise. They got it, they lost it, and it's okay because there's no future promise. Others say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, God made this promise And land promises to Israel are repeated frequently all throughout the Old Testament. This land, this land, this land, this land. And even when you get into Jeremiah and start reading about the new covenant, land promises seem to show up there again. You've got these way after they go into the land, lose the land, go into Babylonian captivity, come out of Babylonian captivity. After all of that, there seems to be these promises maybe in the major and minor prophets that still seems to imply almost explicitly, you're going to be back in the land. You're going to be back in the land. Now, either you have to go, "Whoa, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Those land promises are not literal land, it's figurative, and it just speaks of the influence of the church, that's where some people go, or some people were like, no, 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 they didn't get the land, God made the promise, they will get the land, and that time has to come at some point in the future, and then some point, we'll po- some people will point to a millennial kingdom. But this land issue really is such a major issue in understanding your Bible was it fulfilled? Was it not fulfilled? If it was fulfilled or not fulfilled, what does it mean for the future? was like, how do we, dude, uh, well, why are the promises for land seemingly repeated as you get even like, even into language dealing with the new covenant? Do you now spiritualize that land and say, it's not real land or will Israel ultimately get every square inch of land that God promised to them, they will be back in the land, they will dwell in the land, they will possess the land just as it was promised to them. I mean, so much of your Bible really hinges on how you understand this land situation, really. Oh, oh, how, how can I say this? So much of your interpretation of the Bible hinges on what you do with the land. It has major implications, on what you do with Israel, is Israel replaced by the church, do you interpret these land promises as literal or figurative, like why, is there going to be a future land promise given to them, like so much, and he just says it kind of in an insignificant way, like they never got the land, but wow, you're that there's there's major implications there. There's major implications there. So so everyone, I hope everyone understands that. If for any reason you don't understand the implications of all of that, or you're confused by any of that, let me know. Newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, and I have no problem turning on the microphone. Whenever you're ready to listen and I'll go live and we'll talk about it as long as we need to talk about it because it's so, it's amazing how that little concept or apparently it appears to be a little concept has such big implications on what, how you're going to view biblical prophecy, eschatology in times, even hermeneutics, Right. Because if you're going to start interpreting the land as not literal land and Israel, Israel is not literal Israel land not literal land and Israel's is the church and, and the land is just spiritual influence, I, that has a profound impact on how you interpret what's literal and what's not, not literal throughout the rest of the Bible. So this is a serious thing. I know he that's not his purpose, but when you say Israel didn't get the land, I'm like, whoa whoa, we need to stop and, and spend some time there but that's so that's the first thing. That's the first thing that's significant. I said there's two things. The second thing, see what I did there? I did a good job. See, I'm I'm proud of myself. The, I, the only reason I'm pointing it out, I know you don't care. I go back and listen to a lot of my messages and my sermons, and I hate when I do this. I'll say number. I'll say uh, two things or three things. And I'll say number one, and I never give number two or number three. I, I kind of give number two or number three, but I don't say here's number two or number three. I just give the first and then I, Oh, I hate when I do that. Oh, I hate when I do that. Makes me so mad, but okay. And, and probably the reason I have a tendency to do that is for those who know, I don't really use notes. I, 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 I I study, think, figure out what I want to do. And then I just go, I'm not, I don't really, yeah, I'm not bound by notes very much. So, maybe I should write things down a little bit better and then I would be better at that. But so, but today I did good, right? I did good. So number 1, the whole they didn't get the land and number 2, I think it's interesting that he he sees this and I, and I, and I'm not saying I disagree with this, but just hear me out. So that God had basically was going to use Israel to execute judgment upon the heathen by killing them and taking their land. That really that it was God's execution that God was going to carry out judgment upon the heathen by using Israel to do this. Now, that, that raises a lot of questions. All right. But he also made a comment, and I'm going to back this up. See if you catch it. I'm going to, I'm going to see if you can catch this. I'm going to go way back here. All right? See if you can catch it. Listen carefully.
1: On Moses and wouldn't leave the, the place of worship, you know, no, no drive. God had wanted to bring judgment upon the heathen through this people that he had chosen. A lot of that stuff was left undone. And because it was left undone and it was left, you know, in their lives, God who had wanted to protect his people by wiping out, if you will, the bad influence around them, they left that stay there and and the influence took quite a toll on the people as as a whole.
0: Okay, so God wanted to protect the people by wiping out all the negative influence. Now, once again, you get to this, this is something God wanted, but it couldn't happen because the people didn't do it. So once again, so did God really want it? Cause he knew that the people were never going to do it. So did God want something? And his will was thwarted. His will was overthrown by, he was like, oh man, I so wanted to get rid of that negative influence. What are they doing? Like, you're like I, uh, I can't help them out. I can't help them out. I can't help them out. Right. I, it. It just seems so like, hey, God wanted it, but the people didn't. But here's the thing I find interesting, that the issue was, see, now, once again, so the issue with Israel, it was the negative, was the negative influence. Please, I know this, he's not saying it explicitly, but it's implied. Hey, this negative influence becomes, negative influence becomes a major problem for these people. So, 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 so we got, we got the first thing about the land, but the second thing I want you to see is this land or not the land issue. The second thing, the first thing is the land issue. The second thing I want you to see is the influence issue. And I, and I struggle with this mightily, mightily because I think most of the evangelical world really thinks in this mindset, right? Hey, what happened to Israel? It's because of the negative influence that they didn't get rid of. If they would have killed all of those people, if they they would have taken all of the land and killed all the people then they would have lived in peace and harmony and everything would have been wonderful but the negative influence wasn't the people i do you can argue that it that the reason god told them to go in and kill everyone is first to execute judgment you could even say that he acknowledges that they could be a negative influence on the people but i want you to think about this any negative influence external to you ha- only has power because of the internal negative influence inside of you. Look, you could put people inside a paradise, right? You could put them where there is everything is wonderful and because of our sin nature, we're still going to sin. The negative influence is inside of us. The external negative influence has only reason it has strength. The only reason it appeals, the only reason it brings us down is because there's something inside of us. Like, I, 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 it's so weird how Christian, par- Christian parents think this way. Oh, I can't let my kids have that negative influence and that negative influence and that negative influence and that negative influence and that. And I'm like, but your kid is the negative influence because they have a sinful nature. We always look external and not really realizing the problem is internal. So I know he's not necessarily emphasizing this, but I just think it's interesting that the problem with Israel was, see, they didn't get rid of the negative influence. Well, guess what? They could have killed everyone. They still would have ended up in sin and rebellion because the sin and rebellion was inside of them. I'm not saying negative external influences are wonderful and great and we shouldn't be concerned. I'm just saying we have to realize that the reason the external influence has any power is because of the internal corrupt and sin nature that we possess. The problem is always inside of us, not outside of us
1: read i think the first six uh, verses of chapter um seven of deuteronomy where the lord tells them you know don't make any covenants don't intermarry don't have fellowship don't bow at the at the at the altar of their gods because they're going to be your stumbling block they're going to take you out and and take you down and unfortunately the the evil influences that they allowed around them was was their downfall and 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 when you read the
0: and see that, that the evil influences around them was their downfall. Now, by I, I, all means, I understand that these influences are negative and they are detrimental, but what we have to realize, the only reason they're negative and the only reason they're detrimental is because we the downfall has already occurred. It's inside of us. The downfall is not the cause of what's outside of us. The downfall is because we're already fallen inside. The downfall has already occurred. It's the, 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 the depravity is inside of you and inside of me.
1: You, you want to say to yourself, well, why didn't they just take the land? I mean, they had, you know, they had a history now, even their present history, the last seven and a half years plus the year on the other side of the Jordan, they had almost a decade of victory, a couple of losses. But after that, that was it. And the two losses were their problem. Other than that, they had won literally every battle. Wouldn't you say that, gosh, everybody would be motivated to continue to press ahead, but they weren't. And I guess we could ask ourselves the same question. Why don't we fully possess the life and the spirit that God has for us, that these conquests represent? I mean, if you...
0: Now, see, he's saying the conquest the conquest represents us taking full possession of the spirit and victory. Well, well, when when you talk that way, to take full possession of spirit, spirit the spirit and victory You seeming to imply that spiritual perfection is possible. Again, of course, they would come back and say, no, it's not about spiritual perfection. Everyone always makes the excuse that we use this language that would clearly infer that's where we're going, but we don't really mean that because, of course, no one can be perfect. So then what does taking full possession look like? And what is, I, I, who knows? But once again, he, he takes the story and says, this is what this is referring to. This is what this is picturing, but I I don't know how you can just immediately say Joshua is picturing the, the victorious Christian life because I don't know if there's anything in the text that would indicate that, but okay. Here's the thing. Why didn't they? Why, what stopped them? Why didn't they take full possession? Why didn't they drive everyone out? Why didn't they do these things? Why didn't they obey God's command? Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't intermarry. Don't do this. Don't make covenants. Don't do this. Drive them out. Just, you know, destroy them. Why did they not obey? Why? Now, to me, there's only one... one now, he's going to point to, I think, spiritual complacency. And I do understand spiritual complacency is there. But let's realize the issue, the reason they didn't obey is because none of God's people ever obey fully because of the sin nature inside of us, because we're fallen inside. That's the problem.
1: You go back and read this. At least this generation, when they first went into the land, had some great spiritual ze- zeal. And they had a, a real conviction in their heart and yet, somehow, within 10 years, they were pulling their hand away from the plow. And, and I think, you know, there's probably nothing worse than watching Christians who begin to do well run out of gas. And, and I, 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 unfortunately, having traveled enough in the world over the years, it, it is more likely a problem for Western Christians than anywhere else. We have it so easy. There's really, you know, you can complain about life here, but you go
0: anywhere else, you'll be back in a moment. Now, this is bizarre, right? Because, or at least to me, because on one hand, he's like, okay, look, Israel, they they just just stop working. They they have eight years of victory and they just kind of like, well, we're done. We're done. We're done. And and why does this happen? Well, he's trying to process why it happens. And then he says, it's kind of a lot like us that you start off so strong and then we just kind of. Become complacent. We just become lazy. We just and he says it's more of a problem in the West than the East because we have it so easy. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you saying that Israel had it easy through going into the Promised Land, all the unknown, all the struggles, the battles? I I, I don't. I wouldn't say that they had it easy. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Like I, he's going to describe how easy it is for us, which leads to spiritual complacency. But was it easy for them? So I, I don't know if spiritual complacency is like, hey, the way to not be spiritually complacent is sell everything you have and move to another country where you don't have it so easy, and then you won't be spiritually complacent. I that seems to say the cause of spiritual complacency is once again external to me. It's my surroundings that make me spiritually complacent. So Doesn't I don't get much easier than living. Okay, I'm going to back that up just a little bit. I hit play before I wanted to. Here we go.
1: We have it so easy. There's really, you know, you can complain about life here, but you go anywhere else, you'll be back in a moment. Things don't get much easier than living in the West. But you find a weakness amongst the saints in the West that that you really don't find in the East or that you don't find, you know, in in the Far East or that you find in Africa. You, You find people that have nothing and yet their hearts Tuned into the Lord are so great that there's really nothing else that they want, and they don't have a lot of distractions. But you know, I, I always re- equate it to new believers. We started our new believer classes yesterday, and, and I love new believer classes. In fact, Pastor Light has taught them here for 25 years, and I don't think he'd give it up if you try to yet drag it out of his hand. Just, there's nothing better than teaching new believers because they're like vacuum cleaners. Everything you say, they take in and they write. Slow down. They want to write down. There's nothing that's boring. You know, there's nothing that, that's over the top. I mean, they, they, they want to know everything. They want you to teach them anything. You can't keep a new believer out of church. Now, you can keep a 10-year-old believer out of church just by a threat of rain. Well, it may rain. I think I'll have to stay home. I believe i have the sniffles. And and what happened to that zeal, right? What happened to that hunger where maybe we have too much access to things of God. Maybe we've blessed so much. I, I don't know what it is, but there is this this lacking and this losing of uh, of, of vision, I, you know, new believers they pray constantly, they read chapters of the Bible, they believe everything that they read, they study with a tremendous interest, and then somewhere along the line they hit these uh, spiritual plateaus, and maybe it's when the feelings go away, you know, where they used to oh I used to feel it's kind of like the Lord said I'll I'll, I'll carry the lambs in my arm and then He puts you down and says the sheep will follow me and you go I like to be carried. You know, maybe you have a kid that's about that age, and they're always like this. And like, no, you walk. I don't want to walk. I think that's what it is with the Christians. When the, the minute you got to walk, you know, by faith, rather than just being carried, all of a sudden, we, we—
0: I find it interesting he's trying to figure it out. He's trying to process why it happens. But I think there's a lot of truth to that. You find a lot of young, brand-new Christians, and there's a passion, and there's a zeal, and there's a fire, right? And then we lose it. It seems to go away. And a lot of people try to figure out what happens, what happens. But I think maybe the issue is, look, first of all, the problem is inside of us. Once again, the problem is inside. Everyone will look for the external thing. The problem is inside of us. We have a sin nature. But I think so much of the initial zeal is emotion driven. And once the emotions give way, look, you see, forget Christianity. Christianity. You can, I'll use the example, this is a great example that I can use because I've witnessed it so much in my life, all right? I, I my first entrance into the world of martial arts was as a teenager, right? Uh, Korean martial art, taekwondo, I, I started there and was in uh, that for a very long time. Then I go from there, I go to uh, Chan Kung, Kung Fu in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. I'm there for uh, many years. Then I come back here to Texas. Then I'm in Kuk Sul another Korean martial arts. So Korean, Chinese, and then Korean, three different martial arts. A good portion of my, from teenage into adulthood, was in, in, in martial arts. Now, guess what I've seen in martial arts in all three different schools, in three, three different disciplines, three different uh, martial arts. You know, two Korean, one Chinese. That's Taekwondo, uh, Yilichon uh, Kung Fu, and Kuxul one, all right, three different kinds, but in all, and, and, and one was in a completely different state. So different state, different schools, different arts, different martial arts, different systems of martial arts, all right? So I've seen it from a lot of different perspectives, and guess what I've seen? When the person is new to it, there is a passion, there is a zeal. They want to be they get to class early. They're asking questions, they're working on technique, they're working whether on a on a form. We can go the different... I can give them the Korean names or the Chinese names. But you, you get the idea. They're working on their techniques. They're working on everything. They're trying to memorize things. They're trying to memorize the Korean terms or counting in Korean or counting in Chinese. They're trying to remember the names of the techniques, whether the Korean... The name of the uniform, whether it's Korean or Chinese. What the school... All the procedures, when to bow, when not to bow, when to take... When to do this, when to do that, when to do this. You know, the proper... Uh, the proper discipline, you know, how... Uh, the first time sparring, how to do that, learning self-defense techniques, learning. And they, those new people are just like, man, they're learning, passionate, and they're, it doesn't matter. It can be, you know, a blizzard, and they're showing up at the school going, no, I'm here. It can be a torrential downpour. They're there. It can be cold. It can be hot. It doesn't matter. They're there and there, and, and you can just see. Right when when class begins, the way they're throwing their punches, throwing the elbow, throwing the kicks, there's this list like, whoa, man, they're going, they're going, they're going 110%. Sooner or later, you start seeing it wane a little bit. They're not at class every single time. They start missing a little bit more, a little bit more. They're not asking as many questions. They don't seem to have the same excitement. When it's now time to start, they're just kind of like, Oh, right, man, this is hard today. And the next thing you know, not in every situation, but in many, many times, they're no longer there two years later. They're gone. They're gone. They made it so far, they they hit the door. They're gone. Now, I know that because I've seen that. I've seen, I've witnessed that. I think the same thing happens in Christianity. Christianity is no different. It's brand new. It's exciting. It's all, I don't know any of this stuff. I don't know these scriptures because you're a new Christian. I don't know what is church like. I don't know about this about church. Oh, we do this in church. We do this in church. What? Oh, oh, and there's excitement. And then it went. That's just because it's emotionally driven. I don't think it's because we live in the West. I think that happens in the West and in the East. I don't think it's because of good, uh, of good influence or bad influence. It's because emotions only take you so far. They can take you a long ways. They can get you a good start. But sooner or later, the emotions, and now what are you left with? What are you left with? I think that leads to, and and, I, and, and that, you can say, spiritual complacency, is what happens when the emotions run out, right? You have zeal, but is it zeal or is it just emotions? Emotions miss the emotions that make it. I think emotions are sometimes mistaken as commitment and fire for God when it's just human emotion. And sooner or later the human emotion dissipates, it goes away. And what are you left with? Well, in many cases, you're left with spiritual complacency because what was driving the train was emotion. Emotion was driving the train, not truth, not fact, not theology, not doctrine, not even really a love for God. It appeared to be a love for God, but it was just an emotional, a very emotional kind of love, not that deep rooted, committed kind of love. Emotions go away. They're just, they're here and they're gone. So so I I do believe that in many cases, new believers have this apparent passion and fire and zeal. And I'm not saying we should come there and throw a bucket of water on it. I'm saying you got to help them see that that's going to go away and what's going to be left, what's going to be left. So he's trying to figure out this spiritual complacency, but I, I just want everyone to understand this. When emotions leave, spiritual complacency arrives. But the real issue has always been and always will be is what's inside of us. We have the flesh. The flesh will always wage war against the things of the spirit. It will always do so. It will always pull you the different direction. When you have the right emotions, you may get a sense of strength or victory but it's an emotional it's it's almost an illusion it's almost a, a mirage it, it look but it's going to just it's gone it's gone don't know what where you well, I don't know what state you're listening to me from but here in Texas in the summer when it's 275 degrees and I'll be driving out towards the church and you can just look and uh, look ahead it looks like there's water all over the road it's a mirage because of the heat coming down on the pavement it creates this image like it looks like water. And you get there and there's no water. In fact, there's no water anywhere because everything has dried up and we're in the middle of a drought and everything's dying. But it looks like it for a minute. Sometimes in our Christian life, I think we, we, we the, the emotions get us so far. So can you imagine the emotions of Israel when they cross the Jordan? We made it here. We're here. There's The emotion. Now, if they're, about, if they're about eight years later, if they're about 10 years later, the emotions are gone. Tired of fighting. Tired of war. So what drives your Christian life? Some people just need the emotions. So they go from conference to 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 conference, to conference paying money to try to get a little boost. They need an injection. They need a fix. They need an emotional fix so they can keep going. It's weird, they can't get that fixed in their local church, but if they pay $100 to go to a conference to hear someone preach God's word, then all of a sudden now, boom, 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 they have more power. Yeah, so, and, well, you can I can get all started all day on that. So I just think, he's trying to figure this out, which I think is cool, but he's kind of blamed it on, if you really think, he's kind of blamed the, the fact that Israel made it to this po- point, and they've decided not, they've just, they're not going to take the rest of the land. They've become complacent. He seemed to blame this, number one, on negative influence. Number two, because we live in the West versus the East. And and, uh, and number three, because of emotions. Well, I think the emotions may be the right answer here.
1: We hit that plateau. And, and, and so you'll see a lot of folks that they do good for a while, but when the, the walk of faith begins... And the feelings are not what they once were, and the newness has worn off. Then the the settling in begins, and and you see no progress in their lives for the next twenty years. Oh, they're around, but they haven't moved five minutes in that direction. They they just are kind of stuck. And, and you can watch Israel with though they've had really nothing but success, they, they 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 settle in. They they had made huge strides towards spiritual maturity, if you will, in terms of of taking the land, but they they lost.
0: Now, see, I don't know about that. Did they make strides in great spiritual maturity because they took the land? Can't you be taking the land, right? Because, I mean, they're taking physical land. Like, you can't so allegorize this that you (laughs) destroy what's actually happening. They came into the land and they're winning battles and taking territory and killing people. Is that a picture of, they're they're moving, they're advancing so great in spiritual maturity. I don't know how spiritually mature they were, because it's not going to be very long, okay? Because you go from Joshua, what's the next book, ladies and gentlemen? What's the next book in your Bible? What is it, Joshua? What's the next book? Come on, what is it? I'm waiting, class. Tell me, what is it? What is it? Oh, it's the book of Judges, right? It's the book of Judges. And what do we read in the book of Judges? Does anybody know what we read in the book of Judges? Does anybody remember? We read in the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? Is that not what we read in Judges? We read horrible things. So were they really advancing? Were they growing in their spiritual maturity in Joshua? And then for some weird reason, when they get into, I don't know if they were growing spiritually. They were winning physical battles against physical enemies and taking physical territory. But it doesn't take long when you get into Judges that everyone was doing right in their own eyes. I mean, it's it's total... Utter spiritual anarchy in judges, right? It's spiritual anarchy and it's this cycle, right? That everything seems to be going good, everything and then then well, then they become spiritually complacent, they turn to idolatry, God brings judgment, then they cry out in repentance, God raises up a judge, they are delivered, everything seems to be going well, they kind of become complacent and apathetic, then they turn to idolatry. It's just over and 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 over again. I think the fact that you would possibly even think that they're gaining physical territory and killing human beings was a sign of them growing spiritually. I, I, th- I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I kind of disagree there, but you can have your own opinion there. All right, here we go. Maturity,
1: if you will, in terms of, of taking the land, but so they, they, they lost the desire for more ground. <laughs> it was like, well, we got enough. They live over there. We live over here. We got the train tracks to separate us, you know. They don't really have much of a, of a drive for victory. They love the settling in on past accomplishments. And they never get to see, they never get to experience what God really wanted to do in their lives. And we can do the same thing. You can have been here for 20 years. You can settle in, though, in five minutes. You know, it has to be that, that, that drive to go forward. Christians that always talk about the past are scary to me. How, what's the Lord doing? Oh, you know, back in 68, those were the years. Yeah, those were 50 years ago is what they were. Oh, back in the day. Well, back in the day, it's not today. That's out of date, isn't it? Remember when? That doesn't work. But spiritually, they, we, we become complacent and stagnate. And the length that these new believers travel in the first year, they never seem to duplicate. Whatever ground they make up in the first year, they, they can never reproduce that in, in the second or the fifth of the year or the eighth or the tenth year. And the fact that God was saying to them and would say to them to the end of this book, I'm going to go with you. Just don't forget what I've told you. I've got so much more for you. He's more than willing. He's more than able. But time becomes a deterrent to diligence. It's time that steals from you commitment, and it shouldn't. We should be more at it. The warning from this book and the one that follows it is that we should be careful of spiritual complacency because the places where you in your flesh leave strongholds for the enemy even though most of your life is in the Lord's hands and, and everyone would consider you a man or a woman of God and, and, and you're known for that. There are those areas in your life that, that, that you know, are, can be the very areas that, that take you down and the enemy doesn't rest. He, he's not giving up. Satan, he's still motivated to destroy you. And to take you out. And he'll work with what you provide. But if you leave you know, in your Christian life things that the enemy can grab onto—whatever Whether it's your, your anger or your pride or alcohol or pornography or covetousness. Pick one. If, if, there's, if it's an easily besetting sin it can take care of you. And the children of Israel hey, they come so far and you go yes. And they stop. And they don't go forward. God promises victory to the spiritually diligent and instead Israel said-
0: And again I would just have to ask I have to raise this question all the time when Christians talk about victory clearly they're not talking about perfection so then that's a victory without perfection a victory where you're still sinning so then you have to quantify this in some kind of odd way but once again the it's always the well some of those things he mentioned are internal let's just make sure we realize the battle is waged internally Spirit, we, we always think of spiritual warfare as this fight against external spiritual dangers, right? We like the Hollywood, you know, Frank Peretti, this present darkness kind of like spiritual warfare. We're fighting demons, we're fighting this. And it's like this we love that kind of, it, we romanticize it. The battle wages, it's It's inside of you because there is depravity and sin inside of you. That's where the battle rages. That's where the battle has to be fought. That's where you have to wage war uh, inside of you. That's where the issues are. That's where the issues are inside of you and inside of me. We always tend to kind of look at this external stuff, but it's an internal. The problem is inside of me and it's inside of you. Whatever external influence that you are worried about, the only reason it has power is because of what's inside of you. And I, I just really want to stress that.
1: Settled in and it became their ruin. And the enemy took what he could be, take and he, he worked him over. And you, that can happen to you. And, and it can happen to me if we lose our, our sense of drive. Well, Verse 2 tells us that the Lord said to Joshua, besides that he was old and there was a lot, still a lot of land to take, This is the land that that yet remains. And down through verse 7 is the land that remains. And I would refer you to a good Bible map. It won't be the one that I gave you because the one that I gave you has to do with with the assignment of the tribes. But but needless to say, you can certainly find these areas on your map. And and, uh, what you get the feeling about when you read down through verse 7 is there was a lot of stuff left for them to deal with. A lot of stuff. Verse 6 says, And all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon, as far as the es- uh, Misrifal brook, all of the Sidonians, whom I will drive out from before the children of Israel, only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine and a half tribes, or the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. So God takes this place of division and to say there's lots of resistance and these pockets are in the north, the south, the the coastlands over towards the Jordan River Um, but Joshua wasn't going to have a successor, the tribes were going to deal with it themselves. Well starting in verse 8 the Lord then gives to us through the end of this chapter the division of the land first to those who were going to stay on the other side of the Jordan where the, the children of Israel have come from if you will. The eastern side, right? And you remember those two and a half tribes. In fact, you can see them on your map. You can see how much land Manasseh actually got, right? If you look on both sides of the, of the Jordan River, which is kind of in the middle, that Gad is there and, and Reuben is there as well. But he starts by speaking to us about those three, two two and a half tribes on the eastern side or to the right side of your map, if you will, uh, of the uh, Jordan River. And In verses 9 through verse 33, and again, I'm going to save you the trouble of reading them tonight because there's a lot of cities. Some of them are no longer with us, but they explain the borders of the land. Verse 15, and Moses had given to the tribe of the sons of Reuben. In verse 24, and Moses had given an inheritance to the tribe of Gad, according to their families. And in verse 29, and Moses had given an inheritance to half of the tribe of of Manasseh. So those are the three. Like I said, a good ancient map in your Bible, you can get a good feel for these.
0: I do do love the way he's doing this because they're in Joshua, but you notice he's he's skipping lots of verses where you have lots of names like the uh, Ashadites, the uh, Eshkelonites, the Gittites, the Ekronites, the Avites, uh, the Canaanites. Uh, Mira, Sidonians, uh, uh, Aphek, let's you see, you see, what else do we have here? The Giblites, uh let's see here, uh, Balgad, under Herman under entering Hamath, uh, Mishra, Mish, Mishproth, uh, ma'am. Okay. All of these places. Right. So I just find it funny. Like he's just kind of skipping around to the verses that are simple. That's probably smart to do. It's probably smart to do. Or you just have to, as a pastor, read this and read this and read this and probably listen to audio Bible to you can make sure you say them correctly. But I, I do find it interesting that he's just kind of like, I mean, you can read all of them. There's lots of places here. We'll skip down here. That That's, that's actually pretty smart. I'm not in any way criticizing or making fun of it because I, would, I I would be like, man, trying to read some of these, like, uh, uh, let's see, you see, uh, w- which one would throw me, off oh, that mish, Mishrap Mishrapov Mayam would probably definitely throw me off. Um, see, there's another, uh, a lot of these uh, here. Um, yeah, there's a bunch here. But, uh, so, interesting. Let's just see if he says anything else, and then we'll kind of wrap this up, because we've covered what we wanted to cover was really spiritual complacency. Well, let's see if he says anything else.
1: Folks, The bigger lesson is is the one you don't want to lose, and and that is, though God gave them this land, they left enough enemies in it to be defeated by them eventually, and they lost all that God has given them. You know, the Lord might give you peace and joy and hope, but you get away from the Lord, you're going to lose your peace, you're going to lose your joy, you're going to lose your hope, because you're, you're going to have your eyes off of Him and back on the things around you. So they never pressed in, even though God had His best in mind it would require dis- diligence on their uh, behalf. Now we are going to deal with it in, in a cu- another couple years, in, in years, another couple of weeks, in more detail. but I-, I wanted to address this issue of these folks who took this land on the eastern side of the Jordan. I wanted to talk to you for a minute about these two and a half trials, because you-
0: OK, I'll stop there. Because we've accomplished what we've wanted to accomplish. I would challenge you to look up that podcast. You can find it on any of your podcast apps. It is called uh, Growing Through Grace. Growing Through Grace. Its cover uh, has uh, 2 Peter 3.18 at the top left. Then it's kind of a bluish background with like a, it looks like a Bible that's open. Uh, And then it says Growing Through Grace is kind of like a, almost a, a greenish color. And uh, you can find it anywhere you get your podcast. I would challenge you to go listen to it where you can hear the rest of things he has to say. If you want to pick up where we left off, just fast forward to 17 minutes and 59 seconds, and then you'll be good to go and you can listen. And then there's a part two as well as he goes through some of this. But for us, the main thing I want us to focus on is this. and here's, I'm going to throw out a hypothetical question. I know this is hypothetical. I know it's speculation, I know it's speculation. I know it's hypothetical, but I at least want to throw it out there, right? Because I think I think Christians will answer this in very, very different ways. I have a perspective that's in the minority of the minority of the minority, or everyone else is in the majority, and I understand that, and I'm, I'm willing to say, hey, I'm by myself. That's okay. But here's my question. If Israel, as he said, would have pressed in, if Israel would have killed everyone in the land, Would have killed them all, right? Killed them all. Would have taken full possession of the land. Boom, they have the land. Those people are driven out. There still would have been other nations around them, other nations who still would have tried to invade and have all, they still would have had all these other issues. But if they would have driven that influence out, they would have gained the victory. Would that have meant that Israel would not have faced all the issues they're going to face in Judges, in all the rest of the Old Testament. In other words, if because the way this is preached is almost like, hey, the their, what led to their downfall was they didn't take the land. If they would have taken the land, see, they would have gotten rid of the negative influence. In other words, if you answer it that, yes, if they would have driven out all of the negative influence, everything would have been great. They They would have basically lived a spiritual victorious life as a nation from that point on. I, I think that when you answer it that way, you seem to be inferring that the problem was external. Where, see, to me, if they would have killed everyone, driven everyone out, guess what? They would have still sinned and still find themselves doing what was right in their own eyes. I mean, look, did Israel need a negative influence on them when they, after they left Egypt, to constantly found themselves? Golden calf, grumbling, complaining, rebellion. I mean, there was sin after sin after sin. But sometimes we get to this story and like, hey, hey, this is this this is the story everyone needs to get, especially if it's preached to young people. Young people, there's all these negative influences. You get rid of the negative influences, then you will be spiritually victorious. But the problem is, the problem of the the negative influence is inside of them. That's where the problem lies with for all of us. The one thing that is true from Genesis to Revelation is that God's people, whether it's the nation of Israel or whether it's the church, whether it's an individual person or whether it's a group of people, the one thing true of God's people from Genesis to Revelation is sin, 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 because the problem is inside. Now, I'm not saying we ignore the external influence. I'm not saying... Hey, that, 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 that external thing is causing a problem. But the reason it's causing a problem is because of what's inside of you. And what we want to do is fight the external influence and not deal with the internal problem. But I think spiritual complacency has a lot to do with, and I think it happens in the lives of believers, is because the emotions are gone. So what's driving you in your Christian life? Is it emotion or what? What what like once the emotion is gone, what's going to be the thing that's truly going to move you forward and drive you in your Christian life? Or are you just going to find yourself sitting on the side of the road going, "Ah, eh, I don't care anymore." What what what's going to be the thing that motivates you for? Once the emotions are gone because the emotions will come and go. Now you may be able to run to a conference and get you know, re energized You may get a, a guest preacher comes in and boom, re-energize. But only all of that will be temporary. And then boom, you're right back to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, living out your Christian life. So there you go. There's about a million other things we could talk about, but we've spent an hour having a little bit of fun review, reviewing, kind of not even reviewing the whole episode. We only reviewed a few minutes of it. Uh, But, you know, Growing Through Grace, it's a podcast. I heard it this morning because my cat woke woke me up. And so I thought I would share it with you as I've been thinking a little bit about spiritual complacency today. And I would love to get your thoughts on the entire subject. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. I'm going to go find food. After I find food, someone did email me a sermon they want me to review. So maybe we'll do that. I don't know. Um, we'll just see where the day takes us here. We we started the day off <laughs> with a Today's Focus episode that I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to stay away from my email inbox because I know some people are going to be ticked off. But hey, if you didn't hear that, what did Solomon say? Go listen to that. And then there, a little bit of spiritual complacency. Love to get your thoughts. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. Always remember uh, to download the Church One app. That's usually the best way to keep up with everything we're doing since we're live on the air like all the time. Church O-N-E, Church O-N-E, search for Theology Central, and then, well, you can be notified every time we're going live because it seems like literally all the time. All right, Church O-N-E. Everyone have a great day. God bless.